So Luke 17, uh, or no, I've said 17 at least twice, right? Yeah, I'm just now hearing myself. I told you, sometimes sometimes it's not just 30 seconds ahead of the brain here. I don't know. Sometimes it's other places. Uh, Luke 18, verse 1. I think the reason I have 17 in my head is because Luke 18, verse 1, the parable of the persistent widow, begins in Luke 17. And not literally the parable itself, but its context begins in 17. We sometimes approach this parable as if it is just a parable about us uh, praying persistently. Is it about that? Yeah, but God is not actually encouraging us to become nags of God. Who wants that, right? You've read the Word of God, and in the book of Proverbs it says multiple times, it is better to live, and it gives various places depending on where you're reading it. Better to live on the roof of the house. Better to live in the corner of the roof of the house. Better to live out in the desert by yourself than in the house with a nagging wife. It was a man who wrote it, so don't get upset. The same thing is true of a nagging husband. Okay, I can feel I can feel the vibes already. Not from my wife either. Somebody over really ready. Well, I get it. It was, it was offensive the way I said it, but not the way it was intended. So, that's... I was actually just quoting Proverbs. But that's what it said. So... Nagging people, regardless of their gender, ain't fun people, are they? Nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be nagged. Neither does God. So Luke 18 is not a primer on how to become a spiritual nag to God the Father. I've heard it preached that way. So, you know, God wants you to just... Well, he's saying the door is open. He's saying, ask, seek, and knock. He's not saying become an egg. Okay, well, if that's not what he's saying, then what is he saying? If he's not just saying you ought to bug God until he does what's right, what's he saying? As if you would need to do that. Oh, I gave it away. That's what he's saying. As if you would need to do that. That's actually the point. But I said the context begins in 17. We'll get there in just a second. It's not really about the things we make it about at all. And so, with that, I'm just going to leave you there to hang for a minute. Let's let's read the parable together. It'll be up there on the screen. Let me see. What verse does that change at? Verse 5. Okay. Starting verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Okay. How many parables come with an interpretation right at the very beginning? Don't you love that? That's great. So what am I supposed to get out of this? Pray and don't lose heart. Lose heart about what? That we'll get to. He said, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Nagging. That's what he's saying. And the the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to the elect, his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Okay. 
So every parable, as we said from the very beginning, has to be read, has to be seen through the lens of its context. It really matters where Jesus says things and what's, what's going on when he says them. And I said, this begins back in 17. We were there last week in Luke 17. And we saw then uh, a parable that was meant to teach us humility. That's one of the things that he's teaching. The humility of doing your job and, and doing what's right for you to do without acting like God owes you something. It's just one of the things that he taught in Luke 17. He also taught him all of these. He teaches them about, he's teaching disciples and he teaches them about the coming of the Son of Man. The last part of the chapter, that's what he's talking about. When the Son of Man comes. Now, go back and look at it and he's talking about one of the days of the Son of Man. Because the, the days of the Son of Man are multiple. Anytime the Lord comes in judgment, whether in real time or the final judgment, those are all called throughout Scripture days of the Lord, days of the Son of Man. And so there, there have already been multiple days of the Son of Man, times where he came in judgment. Maybe 70 was one of those. Uh, destruction of the temple by Babylon was one of those. Those are all days of the Lord. Okay, So this we know. It, it happens. And when he talks to them about the day of the Lord and talks to them about some other days of the Lord, he teaches them about patience. He teaches them about trust. Let me just go ahead and put all these up here because I'm not going to remember to click this morning. I can feel it. He talks to them about humility. He talks to them about trusting the Lord's timing. There's a great song. and Here's a, whichever song leader wants to learn it to sing it. Called In His Time. It's a short little song. In His Time. God makes everything beautiful in His time. Not Ray Stevens. That's not the one I'm talking Don't learn the wrong one. Uh, but in His time. Do we trust that? So in a context of trusting that God really is going to come and make all things right again. That he is going to restore all things. That he is going to establish his kingdom. These are all various comings of the Lord. The establishment of the kingdom at Pentecost is a day of the Lord. Do we trust those timings always? Do we ever get impatient? Do we ever think, God... Look at the world around us. Uh, Jerry prayed in his prayer about, uh, I love the phrase you used, a war on innocence. It's true. And we look at that and we, we are frustrated as we ought to be. We are praying hard that God makes it right as we ought to be. Do we sometimes get as impatient as we should be? Yes. Do we ever have questions about oh, God? Why not last Tuesday? Yes. Yes, we do. We have those questions all the time. And this is really the context of this parable. It's, we read it often so, so much the way we read everything as Americans. We, we read it hyper-individualistically. Man, I might have set a record on numbers of syllables with that one. But that's how we read it. We just so focus everything as if it's all about us and our moment and our time and, and our circumstance. And it is, but it's so much bigger. We have a place in a bigger picture. 
It's not just about the circumstance that we're going through right now, but it is about that. It's not, not just that. The problem with a hyper-individualistic focus as we read this parable is that we can start to think that it is just about us becoming a nag to God. Because we, we relate to this woman in some ways. Okay? And we can make it to where it just is all about, well, it's just a parable about, yeah, you need to ask him more than once. It is so much deeper than that. He knows the things that we go through. And he knows the things in the big picture that the people of God have, God have been through for thousands of years. Those men like Elijah who were faithful in times that make ours look like romper room. He knew what Elijah would go through. And when he went to Elijah, who was tempted in his moment after the defeating by the power of God, the prophets of Baal, he was tempted to, to cocoon up and become hyper-individualistic. It was all about Elijah in that moment. Go read it. He is all about Elijah. Even though he had seen the power of God, even though he had seen the deliverance of God, even though he had seen the proof of his power, he makes it all about him and his tiredness and his fear and his aloneness. He says, well, this didn't even do any good. God goes to Elijah and makes him eat and rest and eat rest. Sometimes you just need a nap and some food. Okay? Sometimes you're down. That's really all it is. Go do it. But he also teaches Elijah. Elijah, it's not all about you. I am working through all of this. Would you just trust me? And he says, and you're not even alone in all of this. I have thousands of you. Elijah thought he was the only one. Because when we become so hyper self-centered, we think we're just, well, we're just the only ones doing anything right. And that's never true. He literally tells him, I have thousands of prophets, Elijah. Thousands. He still calls it a remnant. But it's a pretty big remnant. Thousands. We need to remember that. We are never alone. This woman, she was alone. The parable is meant to contrast this story and the way we often feel as we identify with the story and the reality of who we are and where we are in Christ. Where we are and who we are as people who believe and trust in Father. That's what he's trying to give. And so he tells this story about this woman and he makes her a widow. Of course he makes her a widow. No one was more vulnerable in their society than a widow. Because she's lost her husband. She apparently has no son. And in her society, if you didn't have a man, you were in trouble. We've grown past some of that, but they hadn't yet. And that was the reality. She didn't have any kind of, there was no social security. There were no food stamps. There was no one for her to go to. We don't know what the problem was. Jesus doesn't bother to add that detail to the story. But for some reason, there was some sort of injustice. We don't know if it was a bad landlord. We don't know what the deal was. But somehow or another, she is being mistreated. And the only way to make it right is to go to a judge. That was tougher even then than it is now. One, again, she's a woman. She doesn't have great standing. She's going before a judge. 
who, if he were a real guy, would have been among those Jewish men who would get up in the morning and say, praise God that I was not born a woman. They really prayed that sometimes. Because it was that bad. It was that bad. And then to be a widow is to be in even more dire circumstances. When you go to a judge in the first century, in their system, you don't have police reports. There's no such thing. Whatever it was that was going on. You don't have police reports that you can file before the judge. You don't. She doesn't have any sort of a lawyer or an advocate. She is there on her own before the judge to plead her case. And she has to prove everything herself. Before a judge, Jesus says, does not care. Doesn't care. He just he says about himself, I don't care about people. You say, well, why are you a judge? The same reason we have judges who don't care about people. They figured out how to work perks and bribes. Right? We have them too. They don't really care about people sometimes. So either are good judges and bad judges. Boy, did she pick the wrong one. He said, I don't care. And for the longest time, he just, I didn't even need to hear it. And there's no appeals court for her. If he doesn't want to hear it, then it doesn't get her. Because he doesn't care. What does she do? Starts knocking on his door. Now, I know that we have people who think, well, you should never be able to knock on a judge's door. And I understand why, because we live in a dangerous world. However, good for her. She was able to go and put a face to a name. She goes to the door and says, you going to help me or what? And she drives him nuts. And she might have been really annoying. I have no idea. My impression is, she was. And she just decides, I'm going to be the thorn in your side, the burr in your saddle, until you get up and do something. And eventually, that's what happens. It's a contrast parable. Everything Jesus tells in this parable is to say, and aren't you glad God is not like that? So it's weird that we sometimes come away from this parable and go, yeah, we've got to be that widow with God. That's not what he's saying. It's the opposite. He has been teaching his disciples. There are the context. He's been teaching his disciples to serve and not give up, to trust and not give up. And now he says, pray and don't give up. Not because God doesn't hear, but because he does. Not because God doesn't care, but because he does. Not because... You have to nag him. He's saying, because you don't. Trust him. Trust his answers. Trust his timing. Trust he knows he's not this guy. There are people all over the world who are practicing the faith and the religion, some of them things called churches. Worshiping a God, pleading with a God, who has to be nagged. It's idolatry. Idols have to be nagged. You know why they have to be nagged? Because they don't answer. It's kind of obvious, right? That's why you have to keep nagging. We don't serve an idol God. In either spelling of the word, we do not serve an idol God. We don't serve an indifferent God. Y'all know I've said it before, I believe indifference may be the higher form of hate. The deeper form of hate. Because you can't even summon up a care. 
That was this guy. Just indifferent. Did not care. Did not. I would rather have somebody hate me with fire coming out of their nose than just not care. It's worse. They're telling you you're not even worth the emotion. It's worse. We don't serve that God. We serve God who cares. He wants us to see God is the exact opposite of this judge in every way. So I want you to be the opposite of this widow. That's the part we don't always get. You don't nag God. You trust Him. You keep praying, but you pray in trust. You pray in faith. You pray in the knowledge that He hears, listens, answers, and is already working on it before you ever bend your knee. Prayer is so much more about opening our eyes to how the answer is already coming than it is about getting an answer to come. And that's what he wants us to get. Now the other part of this context, again, is the bigger picture of the coming of Christ. And it's a shame that we miss that so often because we isolate the parable out of its context. He's saying, I am coming. I will make all things new. I will make all things right. I will bring with me the new heavens and the new earth, which Church Christ we don't even talk about. But Jesus talks about it all the time. Paul talks about it all the time. Peter talks about it all the time. John talks about it all the time. We talk about it none of the time. Our whole concept of that bonus lesson, our whole concept of eternal life is up to us escaping this place to go up somewhere that we can't describe. And the reason we can't describe it is because it's never described. Because he never said it was going to happen that way. He said, I will come down to be with you. And I will bring with me a whole new creation. A new heavens and a new earth. And it will be your dwelling place and I will be its light. This is what he said. This is how it's meant to be. And he says, don't give up on that. Because I will make all things new. Let's look at a couple of things. Before you get to look at any of those, let me just say, I'm going to ask you a question a few different times. And I want you to really hear the question. Okay? So we'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's read Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. This is a picture of the souls that have been martyred because of their faith in Christ. They have been bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have been killed for their faith. And now in this picture of the throne room of God, we have these souls under the altar. It's not meant to be a literal picture. It's meant to help us to understand what happens as prayers rise and and as God hears them. Okay? When you die, you do not go to live under a piece of furniture in heaven. It's not a thing, okay? Just know that. It's, 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 a, it's a picture, okay? It's just a picture to help us understand. Let's read it. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, first, got to stop. What did they call him? What they call him matters. Names of God always matter. Sovereign Lord. Why do they call him Sovereign Lord? Because they are praying and not giving up. And in praying and not giving up, they first recognize the basis of their hope in their prayer. God, I know you're in charge. That's the first thing they say. 
God, I know you have this. I'm not praying because I'm afraid that you don't. I'm praying because I know that you do. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were, then they were each given a white robe. I have never really, I've read this a million times. Never struck me the way it struck me this week. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. It goes on to say, there are more that have to die. That's uncomfortable. Yes, it is. That's why he comforts them. His answer was first in action. What did he do? He tells the angels, hey, give them robes and get them rest. Stop for a second and think on that picture for a second. They are praying to God because they have given their lives and they don't regret that a bit. But they don't want other brothers still alive and sisters still alive to suffer the same things they suffer. And it's just unjust, it's wrong. It's just wrong. That that's the way the world is. Not just was, but is. People go through this now. And he says, with his actions first, I love you and I'm taking care of them and I'm taking care of you. And he puts a robe on them. Just imagine that for a second. God halts everything. Because this is in the middle of a huge scene. He halts and he hears. He listens. Even though he has a lot going on. He stops and has them robed. He says, why don't you get some rest? I've got this. How many times in your life would you not have loved to have been able to visibly see God just hand you a robe and put it all over your shoulders and say, I've got this. You just get some rest and watch me. That's what he did. That's what he does. It's an awesome picture, isn't it? Really, really cool picture. So here's my question. First time I ask, do you trust that God? You trust him that he has all this, that it's going to be all right, whatever the it is. Do you trust him? Do you trust him with the big things and the big picture? That as you turn on the news, do you trust when you watch the news? Yeah, God's still in charge. Because you watch some of you sit there and go, looks like the devil's in charge to me. You know, Paul said the same thing. He said, you're going to look out there and you're going to see that the prince of the air, the prince of darkness, is in charge of a lot of things. But he ain't charged. He's going around and he's playing his games and he's causing his problems. But he loses. The rest of the book of Revelation, he loses and he loses big. He's going to throw a tantrum between now and then. We're seeing the tantrum. That's what we're seeing. But why are we seeing the devil throw a tantrum? Remember this. Why do we see Satan throw a tantrum? Because he knows what we need to know. His time's about up. And he loses. And he knows it. We should too. So another passage. Sometimes we look at that and we go, well, but why does it have to take so long? I don't know. So we know this passage. We know it by heart. Because it's still the answer. But why does it take so long? Peter says, you know, the world's going to look around. They're going to go, everything's just happening the way that it, it always has. So it seems like your God might not be real. 
more real than you can imagine. And that's why he's patient. And that's why he waits. Here's what Peter's answer is. Peter, who by the way, Luke 18, sitting there listening to the parable, face to face. This is what he learned. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. Now he's not giving us a math problem. Okay, it's, this is not a calendar issue. He's saying, God doesn't care about your time, Max. He does not care. Some things take a long time. Some things take a short time. He's not actually expecting us to make an equation out of this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What's his reason? He has a compassionate, loving, kind motive. There are people out there who don't yet know, and they need to know. I'm giving you time to tell them. I'm giving you time to show them. I'm giving you an opportunity to share grace with them so that when it happens, they aren't taken by surprise, like we read about in 1 Thessalonians. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away. This is what I saw about earlier. What does Peter say is going to happen? Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Not like that he doesn't even he doesn't even let us answer the question for him. You should be holy and godly. That's the kind of people you ought to be. Waiting for and hastening the day of the, or the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now we usually stop there. It doesn't stop there. What does Peter say is going to happen? But according to his promise, what is Luke 18 about? Holding on to your faith, continuing to be faithful and praying and serving while you hold on to his promise. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. In which righteousness dwells. He just told us what's going to happen, didn't he? Like a thief in the night. He's going to make a new creation. We're going to get to live in it. He's going to be our life. We're going to have fellowship like the Garden of Eden was intended to be. Without the corrupter. Without the fall. All things made. Do you trust him? Do you believe he's going to do that? If you believe him and you trust him, can you wait for his timing? Because that's a lot of what Luke 18 is about. Wait for his timing. This is not a God who ignores you. He's not ignoring. He's working. He's working. It's all planned. He's got it all. Do you trust that him and do you trust that plan? So then he asks this question at the end. And will not God give justice to his elect? Who cry to him day and night. What's the answer? Yes. It's a resounding yes. He will give justice to those who cry out to him day and night. All those who are oppressed, all those who are caught up in sin, every single person who cries out to the Lord, God save me. Every single person who surrenders their life to him in baptism, which is a cry of, oh Lord, save me. Does he answer yes? He answers yes. In the big picture of the second coming, will he come? 
Yes. It's not a question. But Jesus has a question. You can trust the Lord. Who does Jesus say, well, I don't know if you can trust them as much? Us. Jesus has a question. What's he ask? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, because it's happening, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's the only place where there's a question. It's the same question, isn't it? Do you trust me? Will you hold on until I get back? Will you do your job while I'm gone? That was the parable of the unworthy servant, the context of this right before. Will you keep serving, keep working, keep praying? If you trust me, yes. So that when I come back, will I find faith exhibited through faithful people? Will I find faith on the earth? B is yes. He's yours. He's yours. B is yes. You will find faith on the earth. You will find people coming to Christ. You will find the hungry fed, the cold clothed, the homeless sheltered. You will find them because we will be faithful. That should be our commitment. If you need to express your faith today, and you want to do that before us all, by confessing Christ, being buried with Christ, and raised with Him in a whole new life, where all these promises are yours, we extend that invitation. If you're watching online, you need to know more about that, please contact us. We want to share with you what God has given us to share. Because it isn't ours, it's yours. If you need to express that today, we encourage you to do so as we stand and as we sing.